Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we have another unusual royal story here. This past March, a guy named Anthony Brooke passed away in New Zealand. And this got a little bit of media attention. The Telegraph had a political obituary on him and a couple other newspapers wrote him up, I think. And Brooke was sort of an independent ambassador for world peace. In the 1970s, he and his wife had founded a charitable trust called Operation Peace Through Unity that's accredited by the UN. But that wasn't really the reason for this media coverage. Yeah, news outlets who wrote about Brooke and about his passing did so because he had been the heir to the throne of Sarawak on Borneo and had even ruled there as heir apparent for about six months back in 1939. He never got a chance, though, to rule completely on his own, to take over that role that he'd been groomed for, though, because Sarawak became Britain's last colonial acquisition in 1946. Still, though, his family had pretty deep roots there. His English-born family had been the absolute rulers of this area for 100 years. And they were no ordinary kings either. They were known as the White Rajas, and they had their own currency, stamps, flags, and police force, and they were independent from Britain. But how did these white men with English roots, as Sarah mentioned, with very close ties to England, most of them were born and educated there, how did they end up on Borneo in the first place? Yeah, so that's what we're going to be looking into today. Yeah, it's a story of exploration, we love those, adventure, and of course, colonialism involving Brooke's great-great-uncle, Sir James Brooke. And he was a man who, according to a piece by Alex Middleton in the Historical Journal, quote, captured the imagination of the British political and intellectual elite more powerfully than any other imperial adventurer before David Livingston. So we're going to start with him. Yeah, that's a pretty good start. Livingston, one of our favorite guys. So starting with this ancestor, though, James Brooke, he was born April 29th, 1803, in the European quarter of Benares, India. And his father was sort of a high up figure in the East India Company. His name was Thomas Brooke, and he was a wealthy judge there. So as a result, James had a pretty cushy early life, a pampered, privileged sort of existence as as a kid in India. And he was really doted on by women in his family and not even sent back to England for his education until he was 12, which was much older than was common at the time. Yeah, but James did go to England and he attended Norwich Grammar School, but he hated it so much that he ran away and didn't go back. But luckily, his parents returned around that time to retire in Bath and they had young James tutored at home instead. But then at 16, James ended up back in India, having taken a commission in the East India Company's army in May of 1819. So for a time, he had a good time there. He was shooting big game, hunting for wild boar, and basically getting up to all kinds of shenanigans, having a good time with his fellows, the other guys in the army. But he was in the army after all. So in 1825, James saw action in the First Anglo-Burmese War. And though he showed bravery during this conflict, he was actually only 
involved in about two significant engagements before he was very severely wounded. Yeah, and that's the first sort of unclear area of our story. There are differing accounts on what sort of injury he had. Some said it was a lung injury. Others said that he was wounded in the genitals. And there's an article for History Today by Richard Cavendish, and he writes that the lung wound is probably true, but some biographers like to perpetuate the other injury because it helps explain certain things about James, namely his apparent lack of interest in women. And there's a good quote from Cavendish, actually, that sums all of this up. He said, it would hardly do for one of the most daring, romantic, and ostentatiously high-minded gentleman adventurers of Victorian England to have been a homosexual. Right, but regardless of what kind of injury this was exactly, the incident caused James to have to return home to England in 1825 for what's called a long period of convalescence. During that time, he probably got a little more than dejected, we can imagine. I mean, you're laid up with an injury. You're thinking of all the things you wanted to do, all the dreams you had. Adventurous young man. Right. So Middleton writes that James, quote, dreamed Byronically of conquests hardly won, rank and ultimately greatness, but lamented that they would remain beyond his reach. So... He's sitting there dreaming, thinking, I don't know dreaming if this is going to wear out. <laughs> I love that word. But he ended up having to resign his military commission five years after returning home. But even though James didn't return to East India service, he still seemed intent on having some kind of adventure in the East. So during the 1830s, he made two trips to China, during which he made stops at the Strait Settlements, including Singapore. And there he was really influenced by Sir Stamford Raffles' vision of a greater role for Britain in the Malay archipelago. Yeah, but he also picked up some important intelligence while he was there, too. According to NSTP research, while James was in Singapore, he started to hear rumors of a rebellion in Borneo in which the Malay prince... Pengiran Muda Hasim was helpless to do anything. So he had a few potential desires going on here. One might have been the desire to extend Britain's influence in the East. Uh, but he also had that personal adventurous spirit. And here was a window of opportunity for really going out and having a big adventure. So James used his inheritance to buy an outfit, an armed schooner, maybe 142 tons, maybe 290 tons. Um, and Sources seem to differ on that. Yeah, so a boat. He equips a boat, and he called it the Royalist, and he sailed east on a geographical and scientific mission of discovery. Yeah, so he's off now on that adventure that he was looking for, and he reaches Kuching, Sarawak, in August 1839, which was located in an area of tropical rainforest in northwestern Borneo along the coast of the South China Sea. Is located, I should say, not was located. And Kuching had a population of about 7,000, while the rest of the state was mostly jungle and home to various tribes, some of whom were pirates, Uh, You might remember the Dragon Lady podcast where we talk about the South China Sea and all the pirates that were there kind of during this period, late 1700s through the 1800s. So some of them were pirates, headhunters and slavers. And there weren't a lot of natural resources here, which is probably among some of the main reasons that it hadn't been colonized by European power already. So it sounds like a dangerous place to set out for with your personal armed ship. 
Yeah, or at least a difficult place to go and think, hey, I'm going to put down roots here. But when James arrived, there was, in fact, a rebellion going on. So the rumors he had heard when he was in Singapore were true. Dayak tribesmen were rebelling against unfair taxation, and they weren't really the kind of people that you wanted to mess around with. The Dayaks are the indigenous people of Borneo, and they engaged for years in intertribal warfare and the somewhat unsavory practice of headhunting. Yeah, so... (laughs) Again, it sounds like kind of a a dangerous and difficult place to land. But James gained the confidence of Muda Hasim, who offered to make him the sovereign of Sarawak, control over both the government and the revenues, if he could suppress the uprising. So he not only was he right about the tip that there was a rebellion, it seems like if he can put this thing down, he's he's really going to make it happen and, and be in control of this land. So James agreed and he helped crushed the rebellion, and on September 24th, 1841, James Brooke became governor of Sarawak, and on August 18th, 1842, he was proclaimed Raja. So it worked. Yeah, it turned out to be a good deal for him in that he is in charge, he's in the seat of power, but... We've already alluded to piracy here, intertribal wars, and lack of infrastructure, lack of natural resources. So it should be no surprise when we tell you now that James faced a lot of challenges as Raja. It wasn't an easy transition for him. But in general, he's thought to have done a pretty good job with what he had. He made a lot of reforms. He established a secure government and made a new code of laws, made expeditions into the interior of Sarawak, managed to decrease the prevalence of headhunting. Part of that new, that was part of that new code of laws that we mentioned, headhunting was outlawed. And he also suppressed piracy in the region, which we're going to talk about a little more because that's a little bit controversial. So he tried on one hand to civilize Sarawak, according to British standards, that is, civilize it. But he also really emphasized the protection of native interests and promoting their welfare, too. He really went out with his people a lot, too, went out and talked to them. He spent time with the Malay, with Chinese, with the Dayak people he governed. And he was known even for taking taking walks with them, talking to them, uh, letting them come and visit him personally at his bungalow. And um, Daily Mail did a story about the White Rajas in March, and the writer David Leaf even mentioned how he was so hands-on, sometimes he would act as self-appointed judge and hold court hearings at home that people could come and watch, see their government in action. And in one of the crazier cases here, a crocodile was even put on trial for killing a court translator who got drunk and fell in the river. And Devlin, I'm going to have to let you read what James wrote in his journal. He wrote, quote, I decided that he should be instantly killed without honors, and he was dispatched accordingly. His head severed from his trunk and the body left exposed as a warning to all the other crocodiles that may inhabit these waters. So that was just a little summary of the the judgment. Yeah, they actually did a trial and there were arguments on both sides before he came to this decision. So definitely, (laughs) as you say, tough justice. I think if the crocodile had been allowed to represent himself, there might have been a different outcome. (laughs) That's probably so. As we know from the Livingston podcast, right? We were talking about that before. There was a crocodile involved in that, too. We were. So there are a few things in common that these guys had in common besides... um, 
just being charismatic Victorians. But despite this eccentric behavior, or maybe because of behavior like this, he won a really devoted following in Sarawak. And he was pretty popular in England, too, especially in the beginning, I guess, because he is this almost romantic figure. James visited England in 1847, 1848. And though Sarawak was not expressly recognized, he was knighted by Queen Victoria. He was made a knight and commander of Bath. He became the commissioner and consul general to the Sultan of Brunei and the governor of the colony of Labuan uh, off Brunei. So a lot of pretty prestigious honors there. Some other accolades he received. He was also awarded the Gold Medal of the Royal Geographical Society and an honorary degree at Oxford, in addition to some other appointments and groups that he was invited into. He also dined with our recent podcast subjects, Victoria and Albert, and attended a lot of high society parties. And finally, another source of his notoriety, he also had published his journals in 1846. So that got his name out there as well. But we mentioned that his popularity was high in the beginning, suggesting that eventually it did go downhill. And and that did happen in 1849. His popularity really took a nosedive when he renewed his efforts against pirates around Sarawak's coastline. So those Dayak pirates that we mentioned had kicked things up a notch on their end. And with the help of the Royal Navy, James set out to stop them. But things really escalated until July 31st, when the Royal Navy, combined with Brooks forces, used a lot of firepower on the pirate fleet and ended up killing somewhere between 500 and 800 of the pirates. And some reports inflated this number even more to around 1,500 to 2,000 pirates. And it didn't get a good response in England at all. No, not at all. It led to an outcry in England on behalf of the indigenous people, and then an official commission of inquiry in 1854 and 1855. And after that investigation, James was vindicated, but his reputation was damaged at that point, and he lost some of his official appointments. The British government also withdrew naval support from Sarawak, and they refused to offer protection when James's rule was threatened by a Chinese uprising in 1857. So increasingly disillusioned, James is ready to return to England for good in 1863, and he does that. He died of a stroke in 1868 and was eventually buried under a yew tree in a churchyard in Dartmoor. But what about Sarawak? Because we know from our introduction that somehow this family manages to to hold on for a few more generations. So James Brooke had no legitimate heir. Some sources suggest that he had an illegitimate son around 1833, but he never married. And as we said earlier, some biographers believe that he was homosexual. So for a while before he moved back to England, James was just toying with the idea of turning Sarawak over to the Dutch, just getting it out of the family. But he had a nephew, Charles, and Charles would not hear of of losing this prize Brook family possession. Right. And it didn't really seem like that's what James wanted either. Uh, Charles Anthony Johnson, his nephew, had entered the Sarawak service in 1852 when he was around 23. And he did that at his uncle's request and also officially changed his name at that time to Charles Anthony Johnson Brooke. Kind of like an heir would do? 
Exactly. And Charles stepped in. He helped James out for many years. He led the forces, actually, that defeated the Chinese uprising and governed after James left the country for England. So before he died, James did, in fact, name Charles his heir. And Charles ruled for 49 years. He was actually the longest reigning Raja Brooke. He was also very eccentric, just like his uncle. For example, he had a glass eye that he lost his eye while he was hunting. So he replaced it with a glass eye that he had taken out of a stuffed albatross. Imagine there'd be some size discrepancy there. I'm going to have to go Google a picture of an albatross after this. <laughs> Try to figure out how big the glass yeah. eye would be. Good luck with that. Kind of imagining it a Mad-Eye Moody situation. But despite the fact that he was eccentric, he was generally loved by the people, and he made a lot of reforms, too, just like James did, um, maybe even more. He extended Sarawak's boundaries, clarified its international status, secured trade, developed infrastructure in many ways, including building a railway. And when he died in 1917, his son took over for him. His son named Viner, or Charles Viner DeWint Brook, took over as the third and last white Raja. And Viner effectively shared power with his brother Bertram, until Bertram eventually had a nervous breakdown, that is. But uh, Bertram was the father of Anthony Brook, the man we mentioned in the intro to this podcast. So he's our connection here, because Viner didn't have any sons. Anthony was next in line to become Raja, but Viner grew increasingly disinterested in ruling, and in 1946, instead of passing things on to his nephew, he agreed to cede Sarawak to the British crown in return for a pretty hefty financial settlement, so he basically cashed out. And Anthony tried to contest this, and there was this long legal battle that he didn't win, and after that, he officially renounced his claim to the throne in 1951, probably trying to move on with his life, and started his campaign for peace and basically just faded into relative obscurity, at least until his his death, it seems. He lived in a New Age commune in Scotland for a while and adopted their belief that flying saucers were going to bring peace and eventually moved to New Zealand and founded the Operation Peace through Unity. So a strange, surprising career, I'd say, for this would-be Raja. Yeah, an interesting journey for this entire family, I think, uh, that seemed to have fairly traditional roots. A judge um, for the East India Company? Yeah, from a from a the standpoint of looking at the British Empire, I guess that's a fairly traditional or good beginning. But it all started with the adventures of James Brooke, and his story actually influenced literature of the Victorian period. It really inspired Victorian imaginations. For example, he's referenced in Conrad's Lord Jim. Lord Jim is actually uh, a Conrad book that's been on my reading list for a while. Yeah, I think I read it a long time ago, but I think you can see the influence of this particular character in history, James Brooke, and some other works as well. So if anyone out there can think of any other examples where this comes up or just any other stories about the Brooke family that you know that you want to share, please write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about pirates from all over the world, we have a great article called How Pirates Work. You can find it by searching for pirates on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 